2: Welcome to
1: the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the General History channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Nick Jobber, who is a great author who's written a number of books, actually. This is, I believe, his fifth book, and it's titled The Fairy Tellers, A Journey into the Secret History of Fairy Tales, published just this month in January 2022. In the book, Nicholas unearths the lives of the dreamers who have made our most beloved fairy tales inventors, thieves, rebels, and forgotten geniuses, who gave us classic tales that we're probably all familiar with, like Cinderella, as well as many others. His book explores the worlds in which these authors lived, how they came up with these stories, um, and many other aspects about the creation of these fairy tales that actually turns out we can find out more about the history than maybe many of us imagined. So we're very excited to have today Nicholas Jobber to talk about his book, the process of writing it, um, and the wonderful things he found along the way. So thank you very much for joining
0: us. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much for having me.
1: So to start off with, we generally always ask this, is what drew you to write this particular book?
0: Yeah, so there's a there's a strong personal element to it which is my lifelong love of fairy tales and that goes right back into childhood hearing fairy tales and and some of my first reading experiences and memories of reading were were fairy tales. One of my abiding memories is of reading the Snow Queen under the duvet in my bedroom with a torch and imagining that the whole of the bed was turning into Lapland and that sense that the the story kind of bleeds out into into your imagination and you're you're riding along with it. And and that Carried on with me right right the way It's carried on with me right the way through my life to into studenthood at a time when I was sort of 18 19 years old and probably not the age where uh, I would have been expected to be still fascinated by fairy tales but I was writing stories about fairy tale characters and put on a play at university with with goblins and and elves in it and 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 humpty dumpty and, and all kinds of fairy tale characters and and then later on, when I had my had had children, and I'd be reading stories to them, and and we'd have sort of wonderful experiences of of not just reading and 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 telling the stories, uh, but also sort of reimagining stories. Um, we we we'd sort of mix them up with some of my children's favorite favorite, favorite cartoon characters. So uh, we ended up um, in one uh, one story imagining the the Russian witch Baba Yaga. Getting in in uh, working alongside with Wiley Coyote to try and catch the Roadrunner, and uh, my, my kids would sort of often say, "Can we have a story from your mouth?" That sense of 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 the oral that, that sort of oral sense of the of fairy tales, which I find very exciting. You know that you that you sort of reinvent and retell and 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 see how the story goes along during the course of the telling. But that's the, the personal aspect. There was also the question of how do I or what aspects do I focus on to make this a book that 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 is necessary and that readers can can engage with and can want to read and and I found that as I went into it my background has been in writing travel books so I've I've been very interested in in places and what places mean and in the connection between places and stories so then I was thinking about how some of these stories evolved out of the places that they that they were set in. Uh, to take uh, uh, one of the stories I've already mentioned, the Snow Queen, for example, grew very much out of Hans Christian Andersen's own experiences. He he mentions in his bio- autobiography about how certain aspects, like Gerda's house in the story, is a reflection of his own house, his own childhood home. So so I wanted to go to some of the places where some of these fairy tellers lived and and where they shaped these stories and see how those places connected with those stories and and then also to try and focus on some of the people who whose lives haven't really been told very much. Um, most of the storytellers in this book are people who have been sidelined, both by the establishment of their time and and actually later. And so you've got, for example, the woman who wrote Beauty and the Beast, who the more I've learned about her, the more I felt very passionately that she must be told. Her name is Gabrielle Susan Barbeau de Villeneuve, and she's still relatively little known and still has been patronised quite a lot by, um, by, by, the, by, by a lot of scholars and, and not really given her due so it was about finding some of these people who 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 haven't necessarily featured heavily in um in in a lot of the literature on fairy tales and to try and sort of sh- shine a bit more of a spotlight on them
1: that's amazing and i think when you read the book uh, as i've had the pleasure of doing you really see both of those elements the kind of excavating the place and how they came out and also the personal side which makes it really enjoyable and in fact That idea of travel comes through immediately because one of the first things that you find in the book, and this is one of the reasons that I would really recommend people try and get their hands on a physical copy of the book, is there's a beautiful map of the fairy teller's world showing a map of Europe with the main locations of the book. And then there's a lovely illustration of the phrase once upon a time, but written in multiple languages, all attached to each other. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit, given how much of an impression it makes on the reader, Who's responsible for the art in this book? And how did you think about the relationship between the art and what you were writing?
0: Yeah, well, the that graphic at the beginning is something that I had through almost every single draft that I did, actually, of the book. So it was that sense of wanting to keep reminding myself that this is about an international perspective on fairy tales and trying to reach out beyond I think you know there's uh, I found in a lot of the literature that I was reading that there's a very strong focus and understandably so on on the fairy tales especially of Germany and France and and then that sort of stretches out a little bit wider around Europe but then I wanted to bring in those fairy tales from the Middle East as well and from India and that was really important to me and Russia as well so so that graphic was to sort of try and celebrate that sense of the internationalism of of this particular book and then the there's a lot of design work in it and that was really a, a, a collaborative process where I I spoke to my editor at uh, my publisher John Murray and, and I asked them if they could if, if we could include some, some some graphic elements. And and so I sent them some sketches of, of some of the designs that I, I thought might be nice to use. So there are some images that we have at the beginning of each section and the map as well. And then they... Put that to their uh, to their their art department, who then sort of made that look a bit more a bit slicker than than the or a lot slicker than the versions I'd come up with. So um, so that was really nice. Uh, yeah, really, it was sort of one of those moments where you're never quite sure if that's going to work out, but it did. in In this case, I think it's 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 come off really nicely.
1: Yeah, it definitely adds an element to the book and kind of helps ground all the different stories together um, and in sequence. So it's it's really lovely. Um, and one thing I was also struck by in the very beginning was this sort of debate about the term fairy tales itself. Uh, You explore how in English, we call them fairy tales, but actually the same types of stories have different terms in other languages, which you explore in the book, which I had no idea about and found really fascinating. Um, But I was wondering if you could tell us a little about, about why do we call them fairy tales in English? Why is that the term?
0: Well, the English term comes from the French Conte de Faye, which was coined in around the 1690s by um, the Baroness d'Aulnoy and the circle of storytellers around her. And she was an amazing storyteller, came up with lots of fascinating fairy tales. And there was a real vogue at that time for, for these these magical tales. And so that caught on and then that became our phrase. And a lot of the stories that the Baroness d'Aulnoy wrote down were, f- fairies do feature very heavily in her stories and in uh, the stories written by the mostly female Male storytellers who, who were in her circle, but I think the English fairy tales actually tended to. We were very influenced, I think, also by German stories and and English fairy tales. or Went back actually, you know, right down back to medieval times with uh, stories like the 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 tale of Roland's uh, Journey to the Dark Tower. So there's um, all kinds of um, stories that they don't necessarily have fairies in them. So, so I think, yeah, one of the points I make in the book is that in many ways it feels like quite an illogical name because so many of our favourite fairy tales. If you think of stories like English fairy tales, like Jack and the Beanstalk, for example, doesn't uh, they don't necessarily have fairies in them, but um which is why some of those um some of the other names like um the the Danish have the, the word eventyr which means adventure and the the Germans have Martian or little tale. Um one of the Arabic uh names that I've been told is um uh Khayalia, uh, which is tales of imagination. And I think all those all those terms feel a bit more satisfying. But um, for me, it was a quest really through the course of the book to try and understand what is, uh, beyond the sort of the specific terminology, what do we really understand when we think of a fairy tale? And and that was where I came up really with three particular criteria that I think make a story that we could understand as a fairy tale um, I don't think it has to have a fairy in it certainly it, it but it needs to have some kind of element of magic um, whether that's a transformation or a sort of you know transforming from a beast into a prince or or or, um, or, or whether it's a, 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 some kind of mythical creature magical creature like trolls or ogres or witches or uh, or somebody who can cast spells but some kind of element of the supernatural um, and it needs to be a story that I I think children can can get um it might not necessarily be written directly for children but children need to be able to sort of follow it if you tell them the story and i think um the other quality which i think is actually in many ways the most important is is a is a sense of orality and the the sense that i think it's what distinguishes fairy tales from children's literature and from the the literature for children that followed from fairy tales is the sense that it's something that you can tell you know the going back to the idea of sort of sitting around the fireplace. Telling stories to each other. And it's something that children still, I think I've certainly my experience with my own children has been that children still very much respond to that sense of being told a story from somebody's mouth, that you don't have to have a text there, you don't have to have pictures there. But if you can just come up with this story and tell them, they still respond to that. And I think that's where the 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 origin of fairy tales really is, in 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 that idea of the of of people sitting around listening to tales and sharing them with each other.
1: In a lot of ways, then this sort of interview fits into that in a way, talking about the fairy tales out loud. So thank you. For- exactly,
0: it's why talking about this uh, this book is really exciting for me because it's a, it's a book about sharing tales and 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 listening to each other and and, and telling tales to each other. It's to come back to uh, one of the people I mentioned, the Baroness d'Ornoy. She built a circle around herself of storytellers, and they would gather in her house in Paris, and they would tell tales, and they would drink wine, and they would smoke pipes, and they would uh, have a have a lovely time, and the, and they would. Um, they would share tales and they would come up with their own tales. And then I think they would go on riffs off each other's tales. Somebody would come up with a tale and then somebody would say, oh, well, I've got a slightly different one from you and, and, and so on. And that's, uh, that's, that's part of the joy of storytelling.
1: It is definitely part of the joy of it, but it also seems like it probably would have presented a challenge in writing this book because how can you possibly take all of those stories and winnow them down to something that's still satisfying and gives us an idea but doesn't overwhelm the reader with just a list, which is something you make a point in the beginning of saying you're not going to do. And as a reader, I certainly appreciate not just being given a catalog almost of every fairy tale in existence. So I was wondering if you could explain a bit sort of how did you winnow through all of this and choose the specific fairy tellers and the stories that you wanted to put into this book?
0: yeah it was really a huge challenge because there are so many storytellers and the more I learned the more I researched then the, the obviously the more storytellers I found out about and thought oh I'd like to include a bit about this one or this one and I had to be really uh, really sort of strict with myself and say no I think seven is the right number it's that sort of magical fairy tale number and it feels like the right number for a book without sort of overwhelming things as you say um and it was it was really difficult because I, I wanted them to cover a range of places so one of the rules that I set myself early on was I'm only going to include one storyteller from 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 any one country. So it was difficult with somewhere like France, where you have somebody like the Baroness Dorna, but you also have Madame de Villeneuve, who, who wrote Beauty and the Beast. And then you also have Charles Perrault, who, whose fairy tales were hugely popular in the 1690s. So there were many different choices that you could have there. So I had to be really, really uh, sort of strict over that one or um, the same with Germany where you have many many different people that you could choose you know even just going from the the people around the Brothers Grimm and the many different storytellers that they knew but obviously there are many others there as well and um uh, so, so that made it difficult. But uh, it was I wanted to try and be as international as possible, and to, to try and include storytellers from outside of Europe. So there's uh, there's Hannah Diab from Syria. There's soma Deva from India, um, and there's um, uh, Ivan Khodjakov who came from from Siberia. So there's um, so I wanted to sort of draw in, uh, sort of push back those barriers a, li- a little bit of 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 the kind of people who are usually included in books about fairy tales. And um, so that sort of shaped the choices slightly. Um, I was keen to try and make sure that I included um, sort of a mixture of men and women and that I included people who who had different angles on on how they t- on how they told fairy tales or their influence on the overall fairy tale stories so some of them are inventors of stories um there's a section on Hans Christian Andersen there's uh, Madame de Villeneuve who I think can count as an inventor of stories um especially not just with Beauty and the Beast but with some of the other stories that she wrote but then there are people who were collectors of stories such as Gian Battista Basile the Italian storyteller um, and then there were people who or Ivan Khudjakov the Russian storyteller and then there uh, there were people who were the sources of the people who sort of passed on those stories to the collectors, such as Dortchen Wild, the German storyteller. So it's about having that the, the, that range in in lots of different ways that would hopefully overall offer a kind of cross section of fairy tale history and tell that 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 overall story that goes really from the 17th century through to the mid 19th century and it goes back in time a bit when we go into Kashmir and in the Indian fairy tales but the overall story of the fairy tales that that I'm telling in the book is is a is is covering that sort of period from from the um, from from the 1600s to to the, the sort of the later part of the 19th century um, but it was yeah it was really difficult finding exactly who i could choose and and one of the things i was thinking about as well was who whose story hasn't been told so much that or, or has been misunderstood perhaps if it has been told and and that was where i found people like uh, madame de villeneuve or ivan khodyukov who've both been very little written about in, in 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 the english language even if you go to some of the most best known scholars on fairy tales they've generally not given them that much attention so I thought they would be really interesting people to bring in um, some of them uh, have, have had a little bit more attention recently such as Gian Battista Basile who's been brilliantly translated by um, an American professor uh, Nancy Canepa, but still is fairly much out fairly outside of the mainstream I think of you know what people know about people who wrote the fairy tales um and in one case uh, with anderson there is somebody who is fairly well known very well known but um you know is one of the most famous figures in 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 storytelling but i think has been in many ways misunderstood and there's a lot that i think we can understand about him now especially around mental health and sexuality that perhaps previous generations of of um of of, of writers haven't necessarily been able to get to grips with so much um and also with him, it was important to include partly because of his influence on me. I loved his stories as a child, um, and it'd been a big part, I think, of, of probably what influenced me in becoming a uh, somebody interested in travel. Um, but also because you can travel into his world in a way that it's not so easy to do with a lot of the other storytellers, um, because so much, so many of the places connected with his life are still are still available to us. So, um, so it was that sort of mixture and trying to. Trying to strike that balance between all these different layers to it, which, yeah, was, was, you know, it led me to a lot of sleepless nights. But I I hope, uh, you know, that I come up with an interesting selection. But they're also, I think, all of them are people who were in some ways. Pushed down by the establishment of of their times, and so I think they all had these huge obstacles to face. They all, they all. There's a story to tell about each of them. You know, there are other people who I could have chosen, but I didn't feel they necessarily had such a strong story to be told. So, for example, with the Russians, there's a there's a Russian writer called Alexander Afanasyev, who's fascinating. He wrote a lot of the very well known stories about the witch Baba Yaga, but he got his stories from an archive, and um, and and then he died in poverty, and it was very sad. But when you come to the story of Ivan Khodjakov, he died uh, after the Exiled after being involved in a, in a, in a plot to assassinate the Tsar. His life is much more dramatic and he went around the villages collecting stories from, from the mouths of the people, which is what we think of the Grimm's, the Brothers Grimm having done, but they didn't actually do. They, they got their stories mostly from their neighbours, but he actually did that. So he really is the quintessential fairy teller or the quintessential, quintessential story collector. And, and that's one of the reasons why I felt so passionate about telling his story because he's so little known. And yet what he did really was exactly what we think all storytellers do and very few of them actually do. Um, and it's such a, an amazing story. And also he left a memoir behind, which was translated into French in, 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 quite soon after he died in 1876. So there's an amazing resource of information on him. So I found it really amazing that hadn't really been tapped, that source hadn't been tapped very much. And, and it offers a wonderful insight into his life. So um, so a lot of it was th- that mixture of things and also to do with availability of what, what information I could get hold of.
1: So that actually leads me beautifully into the next question, which is for such a balance and such a diversity of storytellers, how did you tackle the challenge of researching and writing about so many different cultural traditions but also across so many different languages
0: yeah that was probably the i think along with the selection is it's probably the biggest challenge of it because you've got uh, people who were writing in, in 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 italian or neapolitan in french german russian uh, uh, sanskrit um arabic um danish so yeah there's it was it was a real challenge um I mean, one of the things that I had to do with the Russian stories, uh, you know, I, I, had, I um, obviously his memoir was was translated into French, so that made it easier for me because I'm, re- I'm you know, okay at reading French, but uh, but the Russian I had to really uh, I did an online Russian course actually to try and help myself get through that. But even then, I was worried that I was going to be making mistakes, so I approached a Russian translator um, who who very kindly looked at the text I translated and 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 and, and looked at the original text and and at my translations and, and and helped me with um, uh, with a number of correct to make sure that I had the most accurate possible versions of those um with the German it was easier because I had a German translation of of, of another book coming out so um I was able to ask the German translator if she'd look at some of uh, my translations and she very kindly did um with the French I have a French sister-in-law so that she was really helpful so um so it's a mixture of things really calling in favors and um and you know approaching people and asking them if they could Look at my work and, and sort of tell me you know if I was going wrong anywhere. Um, with the Neapolitan, there's a as I mentioned, uh, Nancy a brilliant professor in in the states who, um, who 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 showed me some of the Neapolitan sources about Basile and when I asked her like, about the translations of those sources, helped me with that as well. So um, so there were. Um, it was you know I had to ask a lot of people for help and and I was fortunate that a lot of people were really helpful and um, you know did uh, you know did very much sort of respond to my uh, my entreaties and to my questions Um, so that was really great.
1: That's a lovely message and one I definitely want to echo for those of us spending a lot of time doing research which often feels quite lonely is that actually asking for help you often get really wonderful responses from people so it's good to hear that that was true in your experience as well. Um moving away a bit from kind of the research process, I wanted to ask you about something that I actually found quite surprising reading the book. Um, there was it, we generally think of fairy tales especially today as being very diverse, but often of course the most famous ones are Disney princesses. and there's a lot of debate um I know when I was a child, certainly now as an adult um. I'm at the age where my friends are all starting to have kids, and there's a lot of debate about whether these things that maybe we did love as children, are they things we want to pass down, and particularly around the idea of gender roles, and what sorts of lessons are we passing to girls about being a Disney princess, essentially. And so because that debate is such a big thing, I was really interested to find that in um, particular sections of your book, especially Uh, the Italian section and the German section, but also as well the French with the women who are writing the books, Um, I was really interested of the, the male authors who actually had much more active female characters, who had lots of female characters that were not damsels in distress, waiting for a prince to rescue them. And particularly with the Italian example, you make the argument that this was informed by his life and what was going on around him, Um, but also that his sort of way of conceptualizing female characters in fairy tales didn't really catch on enough to get to us now. And so I was wondering if you could sort of speak to that, um, you know, maybe a bit of how did we get to this sort of very princess focused idea? Why didn't some of those things stick around more? Um, But I think it would be really interesting to our audience that might be familiar with fairy tales through this kind of problematic gender lens, to understand from your book that over the course of the history of fairy tales, even in Western Europe, that's actually not been the dominant strand in a lot of important writers.
0: Yeah, so the the, the one you mentioned, Gian Battista Basile, he he is uh, It's one of the reasons why I think he's so fascinating and why I think people should read him, because I think it's the idea that uh, you know we tend to think of history as being sort of quite linear or I think a lot you know there, there is a tendency to sort of assume a sort of linearity of, of ideas about progress. And so it's great when you go back into history and you realize it's actually much more complicated, much more of a, a sort of zigzagging path really to to where we are today. and And so you go back to to to, to his stories, and he was writing in the seventeenth century in italy and um, and his the women in his stories are very vocal. Uh, there's there's also a lot of misogyny in, in his stories. You know, he's very much a figure of his time, but he's also very idiosyncratic as well. And I think he he ha- there were a lot of of vocal women around him. His his sister was the most successful singer of of the period and she she sang for monteverdi the great composer he composed music for her and sang for the the duke of mantua and many courts of the area and um, and although uh, Basile himself had a very difficult life moving around from one court to another he was often able to sort of hold on to the to the tales of her of his sister and and sort of latch on to her success so i think he was very conscious of 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 people like her like Adriana Basile, who 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 were hugely dynamic and successful women and and I think you you can sort of hear her, her voice almost in his stories this sense of 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 these uh, these women who are not afraid to express themselves and it's one of the things that makes his stories so appealing I think for for readers today is that you you have these stories where something terrible is about to happen to a, to to a, to a woman and rather than just sort of um, Melting as they might in a story by the Brothers Grimm or Charles Perrault, they 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 very much respond and 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 shout back. So there's the story of the flea, for example, where the young uh, princess Porziella is is told that she's going to have to marry this very ugly ogre, and she just shouts at her father. She's saying, "What the hell? Why are you doing this to me? What have I done to you?" And although she still has to go with the ogre, she very much gets her opinion out on on the matter. Um, but you also have wonderful stories where where women are really where there's a real sort of self determining agency to 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 the women's actions. There's a story. Called Green Meadow, where a uh, young woman has a she has a lover who who visits her through a crystal tunnel, and her, her 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 sisters break up the tunnel so that he gets wounded, and so then she goes into a forest and she overhears a couple of ogres talking about how their. Their their fat, their lard is the only way that somebody could possibly be cured from the mortal wounds that, that this this lover has. And so she um, she kills the ogres. She she, sl- she slays one of the ogres and and gets the lard and then takes it back to uh, to, to to the to the court and cures the um, the, the the wounded prince. And um, so it's very much uh, you have a lot of these stories where it's very much about this about a heroine who who who, who fights for what she wants and 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 doesn't let anything stop her. And and I think that was Basile really expressing his world you know he lived in he lived in and around naples where i think there were a lot of you know very dynamic women you see the art the the art and the cultural scene of the time you know there were a lot of women in very active roles it was the period of artemisia gentileschi the amazing artist who um produced those those wonderful paintings of 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 women's self-determination so so there's um a lot of those things that i think were were threading through the stories that he was writing and the sad thing is that later on obviously things changed because later on in the 1690s, 90s you still find that that um, amongst the women writing stories in France that they were again writing about very very much dynamic heroines who 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 go on their quests and and, and actively sort of seek out their fates but then during that period those women started to be suppressed by the French court, and this was the time of Louis XIV, who whose whose court became increasingly moralistic and increasingly um, uh, uh, patriarchal, and um, and there, a, a strong sort of religious fervor um, f- uh, flowered through the later part of Louis XIV's reign, and and that sort of coloured the way that these women were treated, and they were seen as being um, radicals and being sort of rebels against the establishment, and so the licenses that allowed them to print their stories dried up, and it became very difficult for them to, to produce their stories in, in any kind of a marketplace. So that then by the time you get to the, the time of uh, Madden de Villeneuve, who wrote Beauty and the Beast in the 1740s, she couldn't even get a license to, to print her stories. They had to be produced in an illicit edition. And, um, and then when you get into the 19th century, obviously, you have that what we think of as Victorian morality coming through. And obviously, I think in each country, you know, it, it had its own expression. But I think there was an overall wave of a sort of religious morality and a family-based morality that... That, that, that spread around Europe, and that seems to have um, focused um, on, or to, to have expressed itself partly in this sense of the the more of modesty and the the this the sort of submissive roles that that were expected of young women, and um, you know obviously I think that's a real shame, but it's um, it's something that it seems to have coloured a lot of the stories, and you find that in the stories of the Brothers Grimm and 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 um, and many of the nineteenth century fairy tales. Which is why it's so excited to go back to some of those earlier stories and find that it wasn't always the case there. And um, and and, but I think it's partly because it wasn't the case in those stories that they that they haven't necessarily been passed on to us. They sort of got cut off at that point where that that very um, patriarchal morality really really became dominant. I think those stories were lost a bit, and and they've never really been returned into the mainstream. Um, which is why it's so you know it's nice to be able to sort of to talk about them and try and push them forward a bit and shine a light on them. But they've um, they've sort of been left behind, I think.
1: That was something that was really interesting about the book is I think in my own understanding of fairy tales, they had been cut off and not passed down. And it was really cool to see that any debates today about, oh, well, you're, re- you're messing up with the fairy tale history if you're letting the girls go off and be knights or having quests and actually to go back into the record and go, wait a second, actually, that did used to be a thing. So why can't we go back to it? Um, So it was great to see that come back, but also to see them in conversation with each other, um, to see the whole arc of it. So thank you for kind of explaining what was happening and why that was going. Um, And similarly, I want to stick with the French women for a second. Um, And particularly this idea of the story comes out from these women you focus on of Beauty and the Beast, which by itself, classic tale now that we all know. Um, but you put it in this category of the monstrous groom tales. And actually, I had no idea that this story that we have that has come down to us now didn't just come by itself. It was part of this whole conversation of this group of women writing about all sorts of different kinds of monstrous grooms and the fates that awaited them in marriage, which certainly seems to be a response to sort of society at the time. Um, and the sort of pressures that aristocratic women were facing, those of whom who also had obviously the literacy to be able to write these stories. Um, But I wonder, given that arranged marriage, especially in Western Europe, is much less common today and even through has been not particularly common for a while now, what do you think kind of explains the continued draw of these stories that were written at such a specific moment in time even though we are no longer in the French court, being married off to people thirty years older than us.
0: <laughs> it's a really, it's a, it's a good question. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I think that the Beauty and the Beast is a really fascinating fairy tale. It's not, it's not necessarily my my personal favourite. So I do find the the constant retelling of this particular story and the impact and influence it's had slightly bewildering and you can track it through so much of literature i mean it's probably uh, you know you could put it alongside cinderella as perhaps the most influential story but i think in many ways it's the the most influential because you can find it in in the brontes in 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 stories like wuthering heights and jane Eyre. it it had an influence i think on the brontes and they were very interested in fairy tales and you find it today in all kinds of, of of retellings i mean you know by big bluster authors like Sarah J. Maas, or um, obviously in the film versions as well, and it. But it's it's a story that that does seem to be retold a lot, and it's of particular interest to women. It's a, it's a women's story. It's been told almost exclusively by women, and it's been read, I think, mostly by women. So it's it's a story that that does seem to have a particular a uh, fascination for, for, for creative women to, to sort of, to retell uh, over the generations. And I think there are all sorts of reasons. I mean, I think Angela Carter talked about that sort of desire of walking on the wild women wanting to walk on the wild side. And so the beast has that sort of, you know, the sexy beast kind of quality that, that, you know, that I think certainly is one aspect of it, but I think also it it speaks to that, that sense of, 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 um, of 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 the dis- of disparities within relationships that that whether or not we're in an age of arranged marriages or uh of what we think of as a more modern age you know there are still obviously lots of issues that i think uh, uh women are you know have to face or, or you know struggle you know have to struggle against in um, in in relationships so i think that it it does it it, it I think it does still have that, uh, you know, have that, uh, that currency. And, and I suppose the story itself also has, uh, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because when, when the film version came out quite recently, um, I think there was a Guardian uh, journalist who said, well, it's Stockholm syndrome, isn't it? You know, that Belle is, is forced to live in this, in this, the enchanted house with this, with, with her jailer, really with the, with the beast. But um, Emma Watson, who's obviously been very vocal on um, and was playing the the role of Be- Bell, and has obviously been very vocal on 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 feminist issues, spoke out against that and said no that she felt that that it wasn't and that that Bell has her own um, her own her own agenda and her own sort of self determination. So, um, so people, I think one of the attractions of that story is. Is that it can be interpreted in so many ways. It it has that openness to to retellings and to to reinterpretations. So um, it's uh, yeah it's a, it's a, it's it's it it it's a, it's a it's an amazing it's an amazingly agile story. And I think that's why there were so many. Versions before, but what I think is really striking is that once Madame de Villeneuve wrote Beauty and the Beast, and I think it's really important to stress that she was the person who gave it that title and who gave it the particular narrative beats about the merchant. You know, it was no longer um, a prince. You know, it's a merchant who who, who goes to the enchanted house and, and has to um, and steals a rose, and then his his daughter has to be swapped for him and uh, to live in the palace with the beast, and so uh, and so on, and right through to the end and the transformation of the beast into the handsome prince. And then the in the original version, there's a whole story after that where we go into the backstory of the prince and how he became a beast and we see this this sort of wonderful battle between various different factions in the fairy kingdom and it all gets very convoluted and then you find out that bell herself isn't even an ordinary merchant's daughter but actually was originally part of the fairy kingdom too on a different side of, of of one of the families and so it's very very complicated which is why a lot of people say that it's unreadable although i actually think that's partly what makes it such a fascinating um sort of original tale um is really ripe i think for a hollywood a proper hollywood retelling but um it's a, it's it's a it's a it, it it became the definitive version. So there were all these versions of, of of the monster groom tale before, but once Beauty and the Beast was established, then any other version is always referred to as oh well, that's a Beauty and the Beast tale. It's always that this is you know this one eclipsed everything else. Um, so I think that's a sort of an, an interesting aspect of it. But yeah, to um, sort of come back to that question that you asked, I think it is. It, it is the agility of the story, the openness of it, and, and the sort of enigmatic aspects about both The Beast and about Belle that allow for that, that constant um, adaptation that it, that it has. This
2: episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: It was quite striking. Uh, another one of the graphic illustrations in the book is sort of tracing how certain of the fairy tales you're talking about kind of have different iterations later on, how they connect with each other, versions and new authors. And it was quite interesting that for Beauty and the Beast, the authors were so recent in terms of adaptations um, that it really is kind of continually generating. Um, But to move on perhaps to an area of fairy tales that might be slightly less familiar to our readers, though, who knows, Um, I certainly grew up with at least some Baba Yaga tales Um, The section on Russian fairy tales, you've definitely already mentioned that the tale teller that you chose, um, Ivan, had a tempestuous life, um, trying to continually collect fairy tales from villagers around the country, while also pursuing political radicalism in the late 1800s in Tsarist Russia, which did not end particularly well for him. So why do you think, one thing I was interested in was that, it wasn't just his political radicalism that the state seemed to have an issue with. It actually seemed to also be the fact he was going around and collecting fairy tales. That somehow seemed to be threatening to the state as well. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about that. What? Why do you think the czarist state in this case, or some countries, some states throughout history in general maybe, feel threatened by the collection of fairy tales?
0: Well, fairy tales are the voice of the people. And... Ivan was the was the person who more than anybody else really or certainly one of uh, more than almost anybody else went to the people and heard the stories from their voices. So it wasn't like the Grimms uh, collecting stories from sort of uh, working to 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 middle class women in their neighborhood. Ivan was actually going amongst the villagers and he was hearing what these people had to say and so and he was very influenced by that. And so the stories that he told—they're—they're they're, they're rural stories about Russia and Russia, life in Russia. And so even though they often seem very mad and crazy, I mean, there's a story about uh, a guy called Expensive Ivan who can turn himself into different animals, and he has himself—he uh, turns himself into a cow and then gets his father to to sell him at the market, and then they take the money for it, and then he t- t- turns himself into a horse and so on. And so they—they—they they, they pull together a pot of money. Well, there's another story where there's a, a prince Ivan who gets himself imprisoned, um, but then he because he's got special magical abilities, he's able to create a feast for all the prisoners and hands it around to everybody, regardless of their class. And so there's this sense in the stories of recognising that, uh, you know, whether the characters are, are princes or, or 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 villages, that there's a sense of, hey, let's all be in this together. Let's all sort of work together. And um, that does come through, I think, in a lot of in a lot of the tales that he collected. But he also wrote a book called A Tutorial on How to Read and Write. And that doesn't seem very controversial to us now, but it was an absolute uh, no-no for a lot of the establishment at the time. And it was impounded. It was banned. The uh, the uh, uh, A very powerful man called Kad Morayev and refused to have it uh, to let it be sold and because it was the idea well you you know you the, you can't be um, ha- you know the serfs have just been emancipated we've already just you know freed from freedom from 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 the lives of slaves and now you want them to be educated as well my god what kind of thoughts might they suddenly come up with um, and it also included um, excerpts from darwin and other uh, thinkers who were considered to be very controversial by the establishment of the time so ivan was really playing with fire with a lot of these things and although they don't seem that controversial to us now when we go back to that time and you realize it's the 1860s and, and Russia was really going through a huge amount of upheaval with the emancipation of the serfs, which was something that happened pretty much overnight. It was a very sudden change and it was resented hugely by a lot of the gentry and the landowners and um, they were absolutely furious with it and, um, and there was a lot of pushback against it. And and, and that led to, I think that led very much and sort of bled into some of the issues that coloured Ivan's life. And so when he was on trial and um, accused of being involved in the plot to assassinate the Tsar, there was a, a sudden crackdown on, on all sorts of aspects of, of Russian life, including the media. There'd been a huge flurry of new newspapers and periodicals and gazettes coming out. The Russian Fourth for state had really been taking off. And then suddenly there was a big crackdown against that. And so um, it's one of the reasons why I think Ivan's life is so interesting because it intersected with all these, all these aspects and this is, you know, one of the most important moments in Russian history. Um, people like like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were writing their great novels at the time. Turgenev was writing Fathers and Sons. So it was a sort of golden age of Russian literature. All these things were pouring out, so much creativity. Uh, but that was partly because it was such an exciting time and such a moment of upheaval. And Ivan's stories were very much part of that. So, so those stories were seen as threatening. And it's not just in Russia, actually. They've been seen as threatening in many other places. I mean, there the, were the women in um, in France in the 1690s who were suppressed, uh, people like the Baroness Dorno who weren't able to tell their tales anymore because they were seen to be reacting against the established part of the court. I mean, they were wealthy, very much upper class women, most of them, but they uh, but they were still seen to be against that sort of the patriarchal establishment. So um, so fairy tales have often been a way to fight back. Gian Battista Basile in, in Naples as well in the 17th century, he was writing in Neapolitan at a time when Naples was under the occupation of the Spanish. And so his project was very much an attack against the Spanish and against foreign occupiers. And so he has lots of stories where he has foreigners of various different stripes seen in, in ridiculous situations, or when he shows the kings as being... Fools and idiots. There's a story about a king who gets bitten by a flea, and so he has the um, he has the flea nurtured on his blood and the blood of various animals until it grows absolutely enormous. And then he has its hide displayed in the court and says, who, "Whoever can can identify the hide can marry his daughter." And it's a sort of ridiculous a ridiculous beginning to this t- the wonderful tale. But uh, the king is very much an idiot, and that's the case with with most of the kings in his stories and with a lot of the people in high positions in the court. And that's because fairy tales are such a wonderful way of attacking the establishment because they don't even realize, you know, it's fantastic. To see. it's magical you know you can just sort of brush it off and say oh it's just a bit of a, a laugh it's just a joke and so you know you can almost get away with it but once people realize it is a joke once they realize the joke is on them and they're the establishment and they don't like it then they come for you and hunt you down and that's what happened to uh, to poor Ivan Khodchikov
1: it is a very dramatic story I would definitely recommend that section of the book along with all the rest of it of course but um that was definitely a very interesting insight into Russia at that time um, but to move back to sort of how you put together this book, another piece of it that kind of adds texture and depth to the book is that each chapter opens with an incredibly and impressively brief retelling of a fairy tale from the teller that you're about to tell us about. So how did you, incho- how did you choose which fairy tale to feature, given that many of these fairy tellers had hundreds of stories at their disposal? How did you choose which one to put at the front of the chapter? And please give us some tips. How did you make them so concise? You managed to tell the entire story in like a page every time. It was stunning. Please tell us, how did you pick them and how did you get them that clear?
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you. So... Uh, I, I generally I went with stories that I really liked because those are the stories that I want to retell and I want to share with others but they were also it was about making sure that the story had some connection with the chapter that followed on from it so um, to take an example early on uh, in in the Giambattista Bazzino section uh, chapter two is the story of the flea the one that I just mentioned about the king who who puts up this, this, this giant hide of the flea and that is a story really about, about the ogre who comes along and then marries the princess and takes her to his house in the forest and that chapter that, that then follows is is about the forest and it's about the relationship between the forest and the courts and about um, there's a, a, a one of the subtitles in that section is the kindness of ogres and about how the ogres are often the wisest characters in Bezyde stories and that's sort of reflecting I think his own experience amongst the rural people and his own cynicism towards the courts where he felt he'd suffered so much so so that seemed like the most appropriate story to, to bind to that to that particular chapter or later on to go to the last chapter I chose the Snow Queen because um, that was followed by a chapter where I go to Lapland. And and, and describe my experiences meeting reindeer herders, or going to a snow cast in Lapland, and all these uh, those experiences that overlap with that particular story. And also because that's the chapter which 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 brings us to the the death of Hans Christian Andersen and and the sense of mortality that you get in in the Snow Queen, and um and also in the idea of storytelling that uh, the Snow Queen ends with at the end of the adventure, Gerda and Kai are suddenly realise that they're no longer children. It's as if the as soon as the the adventure is over, as soon as the story is over, then childhood. It was over, and I think that was something that happened in Hans Christian Andersen's own life in a way that, as soon as he stopped being able to come up with new fairy tales, suddenly he could feel his mortality and 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 the ends of his life growing nearer and nearer. So it was about finding that connection between the story and the and the chapter. So there were lots of stories that I would have liked to include as well, but they didn't quite connect with the chapters in in the same ways. So um, so that was it was you know one of those things yeah that I had to sort of um think about very hard, and and I hope that it adds a sort of extra kind of resonances to to the reading experience but obviously it's something you know that, that you hope readers will almost not notice that just as part of hopefully the, the the experience of reading the book um, and to answer why how I was able to make them short I think um, you know that a lot of these stories at their core there's a there's a fairly fairly simple core tale usually, um, and there's often a, a little twist in the tale in the middle or towards the end. And often a good story will have a twist at earlier early on in the story, and then another twist sort of later on. But uh, you can you usually, if it's a good story, I think you can usually find that that core and, and tell it in a page. So um, that was that was really the, the sort of the challenge there. I think the the hardest one to do that with was one of the Indian tales. I mean, they're amazing tales, but they're often told across several. Stories because part of the joy of that collection, the ocean of the streams of story, is that stories come. Uh, somebody will start telling a story and everybody can tell a story you have kings and queens telling stories and then generals and, minst- and ministers and but you also have the the seller of bedsteads you have the demons in the fiery pit telling stories everybody does and uh, even a guy who's 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 managed to make a fortune out of out of dead mice and suddenly starts telling his life story of how that happened and somebody will tell a story and then somebody else will suddenly cut in and say well wait a minute i've got a story here and then somebody else will cut in. and so when you're actually reading the stories to actually sort of find out which what is the full story here is really difficult because you have to pull them out from all the other stories that been told in between them and then you've also got the layers of of hindu mythology which come into them which can be very difficult for you know somebody who's not familiar with that mythology which i certainly wasn't as you know the beginning of of or not very familiar at the beginning of approaching that subject so then you have to sort of uh, extrapolate that as well um so that, that can make it really tricky so i think there's one story the golden city which definitely took me several drafts to find the right you know the right way of of condensing that down enough but um it was you know as i was really excited to do it because i love these stories i think there's so many brilliant stories and they're Many of them are stories. Many of them are, are well-known stories, um, but in the particular rendition that I've given, they're often sort of less familiar. So, for example, the, the version of Cinderella in, in this in this book is from Gian Battista Basile, where early on in the story she kills her stepmother by uh, snapping her neck under the the, the, the closed chest. So that's something that I think you know is, is 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 certainly not how 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 many of us would expect that I, story I was to go. I'm not
1: expecting that. I will yeah. have you know, as a reader, that came as a surprise.
0: Yeah, and it's part of it's part of that very Brazilian sense, you know, of of the heroine not not being this sort of wilting wallflower, and um, so uh, so there are uh, sort of the the unfamiliarity of those familiar stories, and then many of the stories are, are unfamiliar, and it's exciting to be able to present those stories and to you know I hope I, I guess I felt very much a responsibility and challenge of trying to give a good account of those stories and to try and share some of the pleasure I'd had in in reading those stories and getting to know those stories and try and share that with 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 the readers.
1: Well, it was a very impressive feat uh, to interweave them and go so seamlessly as well from telling a fictional fairy tale to then going into history and nonfiction and seamlessly back and forth. So it definitely added a lot, I think, to the book. Um, But I'm curious to kind of ask you perhaps a challenging question, um, which was that you talked about having seven fairy tailors. And you've already told us about kind of the balance and the cross section, um, which I think created a lovely combination of fairy tellers uh, to showcase. But I'm wondering, who didn't quite make the cut? If you were going to have an eighth, who would it have been? Or what was that struggle there?
0: <laughs> yes, um, it's a good question. Uh, I did have quite a while of pondering over who the who the French fairy teller would be. Whether I would focus on on Madame de Villeneuve or give a whole section of the book to the Baroness D'Ornoy, who I think her stories are so wonderful as well. So she was definitely a, a contender to sort of to, to to spread out a bit more. Um, but I was also interested in in different different traditions of fairy tales. I would have loved to go more into the Celtic fairy tales. Um, and there's a, a collector of Irish stories called, called Thomas crofted uh, Thomas Crofton Croker who um who who collected stories in Ireland in the 19th century and his collection was translated into German by the Brothers Grimm and 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 was um very popular for a while and um has influenced I think some of the uh storytelling in Ireland since so I was I I think I think he would probably have been a contender but then also there was a, a collector of stories in Japan Lafcadio Hearn who who collected stories about a spider samurai and 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 all kinds of magical, magical figures and creatures in 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 Japanese folklore and sort of old um the the, the fairy tales of japan so I'd have loved to to delve into those but I guess with each of them that I that I cast aside it was the thought of well I'm not necessarily pushing them aside forever you know it's just they're not coming into this book but I, I hope I can visit them sometime in the future. That would that would be nice.
1: I think that would be very enjoyable and beautifully leads me into my last question which does often seem a bit unfair to ask someone whose book literally has come out this month i believe um but what are you working on now and next
0: oh <laughs> yeah um I, well i'm i'm looking at uh, oh well it's it's really difficult to talk about actually before you've sort of really got to grips with it you know you feel like you're sort of um uh, burrowing towards what the subject is but um i guess just to sort of give a, a little detail um it does involve dragons.
1: Amazing. That's one of my favorite topics. So I will definitely be staying tuned and I'm sure that our readers will enjoy it when that book comes out. Hopefully we can have you back. Um, But thank you very much for contributing your time to our audience. I would definitely recommend this book. It was highly enjoyable. Um, It might be perhaps for some of us a bit off normal road of academic work. Um, I know that my own research has nothing to do with this. Uh, But nevertheless, I would strongly recommend this as a book, both for its enjoyability, but also for just how much you will learn about all these different historical contexts um, and things that may seem very familiar. Turns out there's a lot more underneath. So thank you very much, Nicholas Jobber, for sharing your time with us and for writing this book.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.